Hello, everyone. Before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week, along with bonus content, including, though not limited to, interviews that I do in my day job, a recent highlight being my conversation with the author and science fiction writer Corey Doctorow, with whom I discussed Bill Gates. Recent Patreon episodes include an episode we did on Gates, one about the Silicon Valley boondoggle WeWork with special guest Wendy Liu, and a crossover episode with Josh Olson and Dave Anthony of the West Wing thing, to name just a few. So if you enjoy the free episodes and want to hear more, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash us. We're very grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Radio, so please don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Radio Network, podcasts like The Vast Majority with Micah Utrecht, The Dig with Dan Denver, and A World to Win with Grace Blakely. Now without further ado, here's this week's free episode of Michael and Us. watching two tv shows lately you watch tv oh yeah yeah one of them you'll be glad to know and some listeners will be glad to know is the sopranos uh i'm midway through season two working at a glacial pace there Uh, there you have it a bullying campaign gets the goods i told the fans to relentlessly uh bully will until he finally watched the greatest tv show of all time and uh, it works the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice well, it is quite good, and you know it's great to see Peter Bogdanovich in action. Uh, but but the thing is, you get a little tired of just seeing the same like shitty New Jersey landscapes and flavorless McMansions and office rooms and strip clubs over and over again. So in between that, I've been watching another show called Vanderpump Rules, which is an amazing show. Highly recommend it. I'm sure some of our listeners will know it. I'm certain you don't know it, unless possibly your girlfriend likes it. I only know it as a meme. Like, I know, like, people refer to it in that kind of way that's, like, typical these days where you can't tell, like, like, where, you know, things come with so many layers of irony now attached to them. You can't quite tell, like, what the status of it is when people cite it. Well, I'll tell you right now, my viewing of it started kind of ironically, but now I'm 100% into it i think it's great i think it's hugely entertaining i don't know how much of it i respect but i do know that i enjoy it so it's a reality show set at a los angeles restaurant called sir restaurant sir s-u-r stands for sexy unique restaurant so it's called sir restaurant which means that technically the full name is sexy unique restaurant restaurant right it's like it's like an atm machine type situation yeah 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 exactly it's the brainchild of a woman named lisa vanderpump who rose to fame as one of the real housewives of beverly hills but in fact she's not simply a housewife she is a restaurateur she presides over a whole empire of awful tacky overpriced shit garbage eateries you know, places that idiots who have money think are classy. And Lisa Vanderpump, really one of the most evil characters I've seen anywhere. Just an awful, toxic boss. And this show is about the lives and loves of the waitstaff at Sir. And they're, as you would expect, a bunch of Hollywood strivers. You know, people seeking modeling or singing or acting careers. And all of them are hideously flawed characters in some way or another. So, you know, you've got you've got Sheena. She records like one pop song every year and they're always terrible. Uh, you've got Stasi, who's one of the antiheroes of the show, I think. She's always writing for these kind of like vague fashion blogs that don't seem to exist and always seems to be pursuing some sort of a career as a stylist of some kind i don't know but like the fan favorite character is Jax taylor he's the bartender and over time you gradually realize that he's probably a sex addict and also probably a sociopath but he's also genuinely very stupid so he's got a certain like bozo charm about him the second season ends with this incredible reunion episode where the whole cast is sitting around him like begging him to feel some remorse for sleeping with his best friend's girlfriend 
and he's just incapable of feeling remorse. It's like the end of The Irishman. So I have to say, despite your pretty elaborate description of the show now, I'm still unable to detect sort of at what level, on what level your uh, your enjoyment is. First of all, all those characters are like compelling in each of their own ways. Like they're all very deeply human. And the drama of the show is always that, you know, certain wait staff are dating certain other wait staff. And at the start of a season, there will be a rumor that say Tom cheated on Ariana when he was in Miami. And of course, you know, the whole season, Tom's denying this. He's like, no, never would never cheat on Ariana. But then, you know, whenever something like this is introduced, you know, if there's smoke, there's fire. So like, of course, the Miami girl is going to show up later. And everyone at this restaurant hates each other. But the alliances, they form, they evolve, they dissipate over time. Uh, And through it all, you've got Lisa Vanderpump who is always coming in and out as the boss, being like, now I definitely do not encourage any romance among my staff. I need my staff to be doing their jobs. Is that what she sounds like? Yeah, basically, I think. You know, I'm the rich little of our time. I'm a great impressionist. Meanwhile, like, she's constantly invading their privacy, and she's constantly sipping some tea, being like, now, Stassi, I understand that Jax is head over heels for you. What are you going to do about this? Or like, you know... Ariana, I don't think a woman would come all the way from Miami to here if she wasn't serious about what she was saying. Just a horrible, just evil boss. And, of course, she's presented as, like, the absolute pinnacle of class and sophistication. You know, she's a great philanthropist. She's a legendary supporter of the gay community. She's always hosting charity events where, you know, fellow rich assholes can, like, buy jewelry for charity and help help Africa. Help Africa. She's a, she's a Democrat, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, you know, she's the pinnacle of class and sophistication. She, I, be, I bet she's really into charter schools, too. I'm so certain she probably is and she'd be like what we're doing at this event today is just showing that sir really respects the need to educate children and give them a hand up not a handout (laughs) and sometimes we see her like hanging out with her fellow rich friends like fellow celebrity friends and it's always like lance bass from nsync you know it's always somebody who's like not such a big deal and i i love moments like that because it makes you realize like within the ridiculous bubble of vanderpump rules like of course lisa's like you know top of the heap but in in the broader hollywood ecosystem she's no better than freaking Jax taylor or stassi schroeder or anybody else on the show she's like you know she's like c or d list she's hanging out with lance bass I saw a great clip of an episode of Watch What Happens Live where Hillary Swank is being interviewed. And halfway through the interview, Lisa Vanderpump makes a surprise appearance to play some sort of game. And Hillary Swank is looking around very confused. She clearly doesn't know who Lisa Vanderpump is, okay? And it was so satisfying to see that, to see like somebody who's like kind of outranks Lisa Vanderpump on the fame scale, sort of like not know who she is and sort of present her in the way that the way that I think she should be presented, which is like just another shitty Hollywood rich striver idiot. You know, I feel like I've probed you on this a few times and I've yet to receive a satisfactory answer. On what what level are you enjoying this show? You said you started watching it ironically and your enjoyment's no longer ironic, but I still can't really tell. It sort of feels like we've we've moved into like, post 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 irony or something <laughs> you know call it whatever you will i think i think there are two things really at play here first of all you're not really into labels democrat republican <laughs> irony post irony here's the thing it's a great soap opera first of all it's fun just on a base soap opera level but then on the other level i appreciate this show as like a particular like hollywood los angeles thing like this is an incredible portrait of the bottom rung of the entertainment industry all of the people living under a rock in L.A. influencer culture. And by the way, these people, these are the people who got out from under the rock. These are the people who've like kind of made it. They actually are on a big reality show and all of them actually do have like fans now. And they're still kind of the most like empty, meaningless people living <laughs> empty, meaningless lives. I mean, I, I, I love it. Well, a longtime obsession of both of ours are several uh, several figures from... This is a regular non-paywalled episode, so I won't I won't name any of them. 
but uh, shall we say a, a broader universe around certain California-based vloggers who are the absolute bottom feeders of, of influencer <laughs> culture. And they actually exist in the tier below the one you're describing. Like they're the ones who go up to these people who are on Vanderpump Rules at like these really sad conventions mm -hmm. and do like the world's most depressing, like 90 second interviews with them or whatever, which they in turn turn into content for their channels, which do even smaller numbers. And you know, these people are, they always have bit parts in like, straight to video movies with $10,000 budgets or whatever. Uh, and then when they interview these people, these people are always engaged, you know, these like D stream celebrities, those people are always engaged, you know, they're, they're part of the production teams for these movies or whatever. And what's fascinating about this kind of thing is, is that it gives you a, a sense, a, a portrait, an up close portrait of the line between fame and obscurity and the, I suppose, broad spectrum of fame that's now available uh, now that sort of like being a public figure has become democratized. So there are, you know, micro fames within micro fames. You know, fame is now one of those like Russian dolls that you open up, you know, and you start with your Hollywood A-listers, you know, and like 10 or 15 tiers later, you know, you just have this tiny little vlogger that's the size of a pea. It's pretty amazing. This is exactly the appeal of Vanderpump Rules. You understand now. And and like, w what do we know about like micro fame? What do we know about working day and night to be low level influencers? Nothing. We couldn't possibly identify with something <laughs> like this. Your description of Vanderpump Rules reminds me of a, a, a weird piece of TV that I watched probably in, I, I want to say like 2002, and I have no idea why I still remember it. Um, but I'd be willing to bet that uh, at least a few people listening watched this as well and, uh, and remember it too. This was this kind of celebrity boot camp thing that was broadcast on God knows what network, one of the three that was available to me with, uh, with the antenna I had in, in rural Ontario. God, there were so many shows like that at the time, like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Remember that? This was just a one-off like special. This wasn't even like a show. You know, it didn't run for a season or anything. It was a sort of 90 minute TV movie from what I can remember. I think the most famous person in it was that guy Coolio. There was somebody whose last name was Brady who may or may not have had something to do with the Brady Bunch. I don't know. Most of the people were people who had been very minor celebrities of some kind and then were now like 10 years removed from their minor celebrity. You know what it was like? It was like the BBC version of The Office, the, uh, the Christmas special, where you see David Brent and he's kind of on this like sea stream circuit of celebrities, people who've had kind of like 30 seconds of fame and they get to perform at these like really sad little clubs in like exurban London or whatever in front of crowds of people who basically have no idea who they are. And he goes up like dressed as Austin Powers, humiliates himself. That's pretty much what this was like. A lot of the stuff that people had to do was kind of like degrading and embarrassing. So I guess that was part of the appeal of it too. <laughs> which which in Britain, I mean, Britain is light years ahead. You know, they had those like celebrity big brothers or whatever, where you get like former members of parliament drinking water out of a dog bowl and stuff like that. Britain as always was at the head of the zeitgeist. Well, I've been doing some work on uh, on dynastic wealth uh, this week, and uh, it actually reminded me, uh, there's, there's a new report from the uh, Institute for Policy Studies that I wrote about, and it actually, uh, it, it gave me cause to remember the episode we did a while back on the brilliant Orson Welles film, The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, which I think was a Patreon episode. And you know, so there's that wonderful scene at the end where George, who's the uh, relentlessly spoiled scion of the Amberson family, you know, the Ambersons are emblematic of this very nice 19th century sort of gilded age version of Midwestern wealth. But, the, you know, the film chronicles their dynastic decline. And a big reason for that is that they have this fail son called George. And there's this <laughs> wonderful scene at the end, which I think may in fact be the last scene that, that was part of Wells's original cut. As with so many of his projects, the bigwigs RKO fucked with it and tacked on a happy ending in which, you know, the nouveau riche guy who's been an antagonist of the Ambersons throughout the movie uh, takes George under his wing or whatever. But, you know, there's this wonderful kind of monologue where George walks home uh, to Amberson Manor for the last time and then sits alone in the house which is about to be sold the next day. Something had happened. A thing which years ago had been the eagerest hope of many, many good citizens of the town. 
now it came at last. George Amberson Minifer had got his comeuppance. He got it three times filled. And running over. But those who had so longed for it were not there to see it. They never knew it. Those who were still living had forgotten all about it. And all about him. I revisited that scene and it was incredible. Anyway, I looked into this a little bit um, because I was thinking about old money this week. And I hadn't realized that actually a, a few of these Gilded Age dynasties, you know, really did kind of dissipate. Perhaps not quite as dramatically, although it sounds like some of them, you know, there were these similar kind of like family dynamics that undermined them and eventually they broke apart. Famously, the Vanderbilt fortune by as of a few years ago when uh, Gl- Gloria Vanderbilt died uh, in 2019 at, at the age of 95. And much of that fortune, which, you know, was at one time kind of synonymous with the wealth of the Gilded Age had kind of melted away. It's funny, I found an article about it. Uh, Anderson Cooper from CNN, he's a Vanderbilt. And apparently he told Howard Stern, uh, my mom's made clear to me that there's no trust fund, (laughs) which is both, you know, interesting that there's no trust fund for Anderson Cooper, but, you know, I'm sure he'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, you know, I'm not trying to knock The Magnificent Ambersons because it's a brilliant film. And, and as I discovered, you know, there is actually a bit of a historical basis for the narrative in it. The Ambersons, you know, ultimately get displaced by the Morgans, who are this kind of new money family who've, you know, invested early in the automobile. They've taken a big risk and it's paid off. You know, they got, they got into cars or horseless carriages, as they were then called, back when everybody's kind of dismissing them as a fad. So I, I feel I do feel like the Magnificent Ambersons taps quite deep into this, you know, quintessentially American mythology about kind of creative destruction and progress, and to some extent meritocracy as well. You know, George gets his comeuppance, or at least he was supposed to in, in the movie before the studio fucked with it. Anyway, this new data uh, from the Institute for Policy Studies kind of suggests to me that this kind of dynastic decline, which did at least occasionally happen in the Gilded Age, doesn't really seem to be happening that much anymore. Some of the top line findings here are just extraordinary. And, and you know, the, the authors of the report pointed out, and I think I'm guilty myself of this, you know, we, we often think, you know, when we think about billionaires today, you know, when I write about billionaires, it's usually I'm writing about Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So these kind of figures that are synonymous with like big tech and things like that. You know, these kind of great new fortunes that have been created or have expanded massively during the pandemic. But the report notes that since 1983, more than half of the families on the Forbes 400 list of, uh, of billionaires uh, in 2020, they were on the list uh, in 1983. So in many cases, you know, this is just the same wealth being transferred across generations. And more than that, these dynasties are actually growing. So, you know, long after the windfall, like 30 or 40 or even 50 years after the windfall that initially created these fortunes, they're actually getting much, much bigger. And the top line statistics here are just absolutely terrifying. So as of last year, the 50 richest dynasties in the United States collectively hold around 1.2 trillion in assets, although it's probably a lot higher. That's just what we know of. Uh, these people are so good at hiding their money. It's uh, it's probably a lot higher than that. That figure was 1.2 trillion. For comparison, the bottom half of all households in the United States, which is 65 million families, holds about twice that amount. <laughs> so that's the scale of this wealth. And more to the point, 27 of these billionaire dynasties have seen their fortunes grow by, on average, over a thousand percent since 1983. So. Uh, adjusted for inflation, they collectively held a, around 80 billion, and uh, and those 27 families specifically hold uh, just over 900 billion today, adjusted for inflation. And you know, I'm not going to go into it, but the report goes on to list all of the money a lot of these families spend in order to preserve their money. You know, you spend millions and you save yourself billions if you put it into you know, lobbying efforts. There was one family in particular, I think it was the family behind uh, the, the the fortune created by like Mars bars. I think it was them that uh, they invested some money uh, to defeat a Virginia estate tax bill that was going to, you know, raise their taxes. So I think there's no estate tax in Virginia now. So as the as the author of the report or the head author of the report put it to me, you know, they spent they spent millions to save billions. And of course, there's a lot more egregious examples of this. Listen, that family can do whatever it wants as far as I'm concerned. They, they've given enough to society with the Mars bar. <laughs> the, the immense social utility of the Mars bar. Whoever said capitalism wasn't innovative. <laughs> My name is Robert Reich. I was Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Before that, the Carter administration. Before that, I was a special aide to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> 
of all developed nations, the United States has the most unequal distribution of income, and we're surging toward even greater inequality. 1928 and 2007 become the peak years for income concentration. It looks like a suspension bridge. Last year, we made 36,000. I'd probably make 50,000 a year, working 70 hours a week. The middle class is struggling. Now, people occasionally say to me, what nation does it better? The answer is United States in the decades after World War II. So last week, I felt like we really went back to basics. We watched a documentary about uh, the uh, Republican apparatchik, uh, Roger Stone, a kind of pure politics episode. I thought he made a lot of good points. You know? <laughs> um, but even though we went back to basics last week, I feel like the film we watched this week is a real return to our roots. And uh, when I say our roots, those are probably unfamiliar to a lot of the people uh, listening because we believe it or not, Will and I have actually been doing this show for more than four years now. We started it during the 2016 U.S. election, and we've only had- I got news for you. We've been doing it for five years. Excuse me. Wow. that You're right. 2016 was five years ago. Yeah. Uh, that's terrifying. Anyway, uh, you know, some people, including uh, a few recent guests of our show, have been a little bemused by its Michael Moore-themed branding, and they may not realize where that comes from. Well, it, it comes from the fact that Will and I originally- uh, started a kind of novelty podcast where, you know, Michael Moore had been f uh, formative to both of us. And by the way, if you're a longtime listener to the show, you can skip the next 30 seconds where I give you kind of the canned story of the Michael and Us <laughs> podcast. I'm sure you've heard it too many times. But basically, Michael Moore was kind of a formative figure to Will and I, you know, when we were 14 years old, going to the, you know, the local cineplex to see Fahrenheit 9-11 or whatever. So the podcast started as kind of, you know, a reinterrogation of the Michael Moore canon through the lens of current events, a friendly and, and sometimes celebratory one, but also kind of a critical one, because we found ourselves revisiting, you know, some of our own instincts as kind of, you know, Bush era liberals, for want of a better word. Now, how tired are you of telling this canon? summary to like friends and relatives who ask about your podcast <laughs> tired enough that i hope i never have to do it again although i'm sure i will anyway i think it's safe to say that the podcast kind of gradually evolved into something more general where we watch kind of political cinema and uh, you know documentary agitprop from a critical perspective but i think our heart has always kind of lain in kind of liberal documentaries and documentaries which you know may may really be onto something and may be very uh, well-meaning and make a lot of good points but are ultimately limited you know i can't speak for others here but i think there's a kind of deep and, and very common millennial experience and you know having been a kind of liberal you know in your teens or maybe your early 20s and retaining in broad strokes the same egalitarian commitments that maybe you thought you had as a liberal or rather that you thought could be realized with liberal means but you know eventually moving to the left and and maybe calling yourself a socialist you know the the obama to bernie kind of trajectory which I'm sure lots of you are familiar with. Anyway, all of that is to say that uh, this film, Inequality for All, the 2013 film by the well-meaning progressive economist and uh, former Bill Clinton cabinet secretary Robert Reich is uh, very much in that spirit. Uh, what did you think of this movie, Will? Oh, I thought it was very much like a lot of documentaries we've watched, but better than a lot of them. It's one of those kind of post an inconvenient truth personality-driven TED Talk documentaries with a lot of animations and a lot of graphs and pictorials. Robert Reich, for a guy like that, I think is one of the better ones. Yeah, I want to I want to say off the bat here that I don't want to be too mean to Robert Reich. Uh, I know the bar. I know I'm setting the bar pretty low here, <laughs> but I mean it's very rare to encounter somebody uh, who's ascended as high in the halls of establishment power as he has. I mean he was literally labor secretary under Bill Clinton. Very rare to encounter somebody with that trajectory who chooses not to become a corporate lobbyist and you know to try to use his power and influence for good. Uh, Robert Reich did endorse Bernie Sanders twice. And even though this film does have, I think, a pretty unforgivable Bill Clinton section, I did discover that uh, in 2008, Reich actually endorsed Obama. And he wrote an article that was critical, not only of Hillary Clinton, but also of Bill Clinton. And he called uh, Bill Clinton's attacks on Obama ill-tempered and ill-founded and accused the Clintons of waging a smear campaign against Obama that employs some of the worst aspects of the old politics. 
So lots of people who've had any association with either Clinton, I think it's safe to say, become sort of, you know, they become part of the Nixonian palace guard, the dwindling (laughs) palace guard, but the palace guard around the Clintons, you know, who I think it's safe to say have always prized loyalty over talent. Speaking of which, did you see Hillary Clinton's endorsement today? Oh, God. Okay. Uh, Well, we're derailing things a bit here. But yeah, I saw that uh, Hillary Clinton jumped in and endorsed Nina Turner's primary opponent in uh, this Ohio special election. I actually tweeted about this and I got flooded with a bunch of like donut Twitter dead enders who are I mean, it's hard to believe that anyone is still like takes such umbrage about criticism of Hillary Clinton or whatever in the year of our Lord 2021. But I suppose Nina Turner, who I think I'm forgetting what the convoluted trajectory behind, you know, for those that have better things to do uh, than beyond <laughs> beyond the hell website. I mean, it's basically like uh, intensely partisan and cosmically divorced from reality niche of sort of like Democrat Twitter. Like it's the niche that involves people whose like entire online persona in 2021 is like still built around pictures of like Hillary Clinton with Tim Kaine and they just retweet Lin-Manuel Miranda and, and you know, like get mad at people that uh, say anything about anyone who's like last name is Clinton. Anyway, Robert Reich, uh, I think unlike a lot of people, you know, who've had some kind of association with the Clinton machine, doesn't seem to become a Clinton sycophant at all. And, you know, very, very cautiously, I think too cautiously, does allude in this documentary to the failures of the administration, the Clinton administration that he was part of, which I suppose is to his credit, although I wish he'd done it a little more forcefully. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Reich ascended to the highest levels of the U.S. government, formerly served in the administrations of Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, served as Bill Clinton's Secretary of Labor from 1993 to 1997, later on a member of Barack Obama's Economic Transition Advisory Board. When this movie catches up with him in 2013, the posture he strikes is one of someone who has remained consistent while the uh, Overton window has shifted to the right. We see that he was once a regular guest on Fox News, but now we see Bill O'Reilly calling him a Marxist. Much of the movie is structured around a series of interviews with him, as well as a lecture that he gives to college students, sort of in the midst of the Tea Party Occupy moment of the early 2010s. Reich wrote a book called Saving Capitalism, and that seems to be kind of his agenda here. It's also the title of his latest movie, which we may have to do at some point. He is quite avowedly not a socialist, let alone a communist, as we see a variety of Fox News talking heads call him. He positions himself as a kind of post-World War II capitalist. Where he may differ from you, Luke, and our audience, is that he says that some inequality is inevitable and, in fact, is even good. Uh, There need to be incentives. That's the essence of capitalism. But once you hit a critical mass of inequality, once the middle class begins to vanish, there is no longer that engine to fuel the economy. And from that, you get chaos. From that, democracy begins to flounder. Yeah, and so it's stuff like this that I think, uh, you know, makes the film uh, somewhat limited. I think, to its credit, uh, a movie like this, you know, is able to convey economic and political concepts uh, in a way that's pretty accessible. I mean, it's better as kind of a persuasion tool and, uh, frankly, is propaganda in the best sense than your typical liberal docs or or kind of culture because I think one of the big problems with the liberal cultural ecosystem often is that its main function is to be kind of liturgy for the already converted. I don't know if there's any hardcore right-wingers that are going to be convinced by a movie like this but it's certainly not as smug as kind of your typical liberal documentary. Having said that I think it falls into a lot of the kind of classic problems that daunt liberal rhetoric and kind of dilute and weaken it and ultimately sort of uh, end up reifying a lot of its very targets. He, he makes a kind of equivalence between the Occupy movement and the Tea Party in the last third of the movie. He sort of paints them as two heads of the same grassroots movement that emerge both out of ambient frustration surrounding the financial crash and subsequent bailout. Both two movements that are people who largely think the American economy is rigged, which I don't think is exactly an accurate analysis of what the Tea Party is. You know, it's funny. Uh, another reason, a kind of secondary reason I wanted to watch this film is because I, I thought it would be an interesting snapshot of the sort of post-Occupy early second term Obama moment when all this kind of language around inequality was was entering the mainstream. You know, it was kind of language drawn from the left, but it was finding all these kind of liberal expressions. 
the example that you mentioned that uh, he starts the film with where he kind of he begins by basically saying, well, inequality is actually fine. You know, capitalism is a dynamic system. It needs incentives, etc. You know, there's obviously a quite complex conversation to be had around economics and incentives and, and things like that. John Rawls wrote a whole book about it, which, you know, five generations on graduate students are still deconstructing at a granular level. But on a rhetorical level, Reich's line about incentives strikes me as an example of a type of triangulation that liberals do. And, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pick too much on Reich here, but a type of triangulation that liberals do, it's one of the most kind of basic points of distinction between liberals and leftists is that liberals will often concede kind of core conservative arguments uh, and then restate them kind of in, in liberal rhetoric. The dumbest examples I can think of, you know, like during the Bush era, liberals would say like they were the real party of the troops. Like that's how you get like, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. It's how you get, you know, those kind of Ob first term Obama memes where it was like Occupy Democrats charts that would show the deficits are always lower under, under a Democratic president. And in this movie, uh, this trope of liberal rhetoric doesn't play out in quite such a dumb way, but I do think it plays out in a way that kind of hampers the often kind of on-point uh, diagnosis that the film has. In a big way, the reason for that is because Reich is intent, and you know, this is clearly a choice, he's intent on making the case against inequality on kind of these functionalist grounds. All these arguments about the middle class, to which he, you know, he conscripts guys like Warren Buffett and uh, Nick Hanauer, who's some kind of a uh, uh, pillow baron. <laughs> yeah, pillow baron, pillow tycoon. He makes between ten and thirty million a year, and he pays something like eleven percent in taxes. This was a very like twenty twelve sort of thing, which you know, which became very trendy, which is that you find like a handful of like the patriotic, you know, rich people that will come out and say, oh, I would actually like my taxes higher or whatever. There's a funny scene where that guy talks about his investments. You know, Reich is making the case that people at his level don't really contribute to the economy. They put their money in investments so that so that it'll grow. And this guy says, well, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't really contribute to anything. In fact, it probably makes the world a little bit worse. And you, you're, you're kind of expected to think he's got like a good guy just for saying that. Well, I mean, it's it's a good observation. That's true. And I was actually surprised to hear one of these like patriotic rich people say that. You know, he has a good line about how the whole kind of narrative around job creators uh, is dumb. But then he, uh, you know, he hits a wall when he says, you know, the real job creators are customers. <laughs> um so, oh, so true man which you know? which is the most like that's us you know like <laughs> that's right <laughs> which is the most quintessentially like obama era liberal swerve that this storyline could have taken you know because of course it's not workers right it's customers it's the middle class and you know obviously this movie came out in 2013 and i'm not faulting reich for this exactly but i think one of the worst legacies of that period in terms of our public discourse and our politics is the ubiquity of the phrase middle class and the total stripping away of any meaning from that phrase. In Reich's defense, he's talking here about, you know, and this is another one, of, this is another example of film making these sort of arguments from economic efficiency rather than making arguments against inequality, which are, say, moral or ethical. But, you know, he talks about the, the fact that when you have a hollowed out middle class, there's less consumer spending because rich people, you know, tend to invest their money or they just sit on it, they don't spend it, whatever. A rich person with enough money to buy, like, a hundred cars is probably not going to buy a hundred cars but if you distributed the same amount of money to a hundred people they might actually buy a hundred cars and so there is kind of an efficiency argument to be made there but the phrase middle class and i mean this is one of the kind of legacies of sort of mainstream response to the the inequality debates of the you know early 2010s you know insofar as the phrase was ever attached to kind of any numbers or was ever like a real socioeconomic category i mean it has since just been stripped of all meaning you know i think of uh, in Canada, the phrase du jour after 2015, when our supposedly crusading liberal government came to power, the buzzword that was on all their documents, you know, was attached to all their budget and stuff was the middle class and those working hard to join it. Um, and I'll never forget when a, a journalist asked the finance minister, uh, who was then Bill Morneau, uh, whether the government actually had any kind of official taxonomy of class that it was using. Like, was the middle class to them some kind of actual category of people making X amount of money? And uh, the finance minister said, no, uh, the middle class is, I think he said something to the effect of, it's uh, people who want to get ahead and do better for their family. 
In other words, the middle class is a sort of vague narrative that any, you know, basically anybody can uh, can associate themselves. It's Jeff Bezos. Yeah, right. I mean, we're we're all, you know, if you want to go even further back, there was that kind of new new labor era phrase. We're all middle class now, and it's like, right. So in other words, so in other words, like none of this means anything. It's just a kind of vague. Uh, it's just kind of vague catch-all. And actually, uh, there's kind of a, di- a direct uh, line of travel between something I think Nick Hanauer says uh, about the need to create, you know, he says we have a, a trickle-down economy and we need to create a middle-out economy. I don't know if Justin Trudeau saw this movie, but a few years later, he in, in the during the 2015 federal election, he'd have that wonderful line about how we needed to grow the economy, not from the top down, but outwards from the heart. So that was the journey of this kind of stuff about the middle class. Well, the fact is we're proposing a strong and real plan, one that invests in the middle class so that we can grow the economy, not from the top down the way Mr. Harper wants to, uh, but from the heart outwards. That's what Canada has always done well with. The movie has a bit of a grab bag structure, you know, like we see a lot of disparate elements in the film. And one of those elements is a series of quote unquote middle class families, most of whom don't look very middle class, like they're the people who have been hollowed out by the neoliberal economy post Reagan you know we see a mother who has $25 in her checking account we see another single mother who says she works three jobs to pay the rent I'm not sure that these scenes are really where the movie's heart lies I don't think they really weave convincingly into the Robert Reich material which makes up the majority of the film you know these seem kind of like scenes that they would tell you in journalism school to include like as one of the elements and you know this because you actually went to journalism school (laughs) this was on the powerpoint i mean yes you've got to have some of those human interest elements in there but the case that reich really makes is that if we have too much inequality then we lose this wonderful society we've built and and we don't want that do we It's interesting. I mean, maybe it's not so shocking, but it seems shocking that somebody with those politics ended up endorsing Bernie Sanders, who in his rhetoric, at least, was all about disruption. Robert Rice shows kind of this is as far as you can go having these critiques while kind of remaining within the political mainstream. And for me, it's like once you've taken that journey, you got to take the next step, which is to be a critic of the whole political mainstream. And, you know, the film, to its credit, does talk about industry capture politics big money in politics its analysis of history is pretty sound yeah it's you know it's not bad um you know the film has lots of pro-union stuff in it there's a good scene uh, although also a somewhat soul-crushing scene where uh you know we see reich go and and he's speaking uh in in support of a union drive at the calpine geothermal plant and then he has this absolutely soul-crushing to watch anyway conversation with this worker who's just internalized like the most formulaic company propaganda where it's like i think the company treats me well and you know the those people at the top they're just they're a hundred million times smarter than me so of course Mm -hmm. they make more money or whatever um and you know uh, reich does a pretty good job responding i think but yeah i basically agree with you i mean the film has a i think once you get to the point of having these beliefs and having this critique you know at a certain point you need to stop talking about saving capitalism or whatever you need to reorient yourself towards a more critical posture in relation to the, you know, all of these institutions as a whole. Reich's twin endorsements of Bernie kind of makes me think that he has perhaps better commitments that come across in this movie, but that like so many films like this, Inequality for All deals in these kind of liberal tropes that it thinks are necessary in order to persuade people of its arguments, which, you know, ultimately end up uh, undermining those arguments and kind of uh, rendering them more toothless than they otherwise would be. So the film at times, uh, you know, is uh, politely critical of Democrats. I do think the section on Bill Clinton is uh, is pretty limited. Reich mentions, you know, Bill Clinton told me he'd read all my books. And, and you know, then there's a clip of uh, Bill Clinton, I guess, in 1992 saying, if we do what works, we're going to put people first and expand the middle class, which, I mean, due respect to Robert Reich, it's hardly the stuff of Phil Oaks songs, is it? But Reich talks about uh, his experience in the administration. And, you know, he is politely critical of it. He talks about how there, uh, quote, wasn't the political will to do good stuff. We didn't go far enough. This stuck out like a sore thumb to me because the kind of two big dates that the film is using uh, to frame its argument are 1928 and 2007, 2008, you know, the moment of the financial crash and the deregulation of the Clinton era, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in large part, which separated commercial and investment banking. 
there's a pretty deep consensus, I think, at this point that that was one of the major roots of the collapse of the U.S. housing market. Reich tells this amazing story. I think this is where you could see the kind of narrative of like the Bill Clinton administration, that era and the Democrats is pretty limited. Uh, you know, Reich had this plan, apparently, or Bill Clinton ran on this plan that I guess was inspired by Reich's ideas to basically force companies to limit the amount they, they could deduct uh, off of their CEO compensation. I think they were going to put a cap of $1 million on that. And then he says that, well, the Treasury uh, sort of torqued this in a way that paved the way for, you know, what companies do now, which is that they just, you know, they just don't pay CEOs with anything that's strictly income. They pay them in stock options instead. But the, the move of saying the Treasury spiked this or whatever, it's like, right, you mean the administration that you were <laughs> working in. I don't know, just given that, that this was a Democratic administration gutting one of its own proposals that it had run on and was, you know, I'm sure very popular. It's a good example of the limits of uh, this style of politics where you limit your criticisms of the Democratic Party to kind of friendly ones. I also found Reich's story about his departure from the administration to be a little disappointing because he basically blames himself. He's very self-deprecating and he's like, oh, I started, I was sounding like a broken clock in these cabinet meetings. People were rolling their eyes as I was talking about, I was droning on about poverty and inequality. <laughs> it's like, well, you're not supposed to bash your old employer in a job interview, <laughs> you know. It's like, I... <laughs> It's like I, it's like I think you were right, man. Uh, but he basically <laughs> says he, uh, he, you know, he, he was embarrassed and he'd become a pain in the ass, and he, uh, he wanted to move on. Anyway, why he felt he had to be this polite about Bill Clinton in 2013, I have, uh, I have no idea. Doesn't really, really fit in anywhere else. But as part of the kind of pro-union stuff in the film, there's a great clip of uh, workers from my old union, the UFCW, uh, fighting the cops during the Reagan era, which, uh, which I liked. The film's final segment does frame the inequality question, you know, not just as kind of a an issue of economic efficiency or whatever, but also as kind of a democratic question. It talks about the way that billionaires and, and dark money can buy politics and buy the legislative process and buy elections. And having done all this, and this reminded me very strongly of the Michael Moore film, Where to Invade Next. Uh, the film ends with this kind of, this weird crescendo where, you know, Reich is capping off his lecture to students at, a, at I guess it's Berkeley where he's lecturing. This is kind of the lecture that the film is framed around. And he says, are we going to have class warfare in this country? Is this going to be a partisan issue? The rich actually do better when there's less inequality or, or something, something to that effect. And one of the two super rich guys quoted in the movie, I can't remember if it's Warren Buffett or Nick Hanauer, says something to the effect of the most pro-business thing you can do is to help middle class people thrive. And so just once again, I think my, my, my takeaway from this movie is that it's very well-meaning and makes some decent arguments, but ultimately ties itself in knots to kind of package its arguments in this very centrist way and thus significantly dilutes the effectiveness of its message. Count me as somebody who thinks we should go the disruptive Bernie 2016 and Bernie 2020 routes rather than trying to quote-unquote save capitalism or fight inequality by being pro-business. Do you know Robert Reich? I do indeed. He's a communist. When I was a kid, bigger boys would pick on me. I think it changed my life. I had to protect people from the people who would beat them up economically. Who is actually looking out for the American worker? The answer is nobody. You know, Luke, you and I have lived in the city of Toronto for a while. We've observed a lot of things come and go in our media landscape. I was reminded today of a short-lived venture called the Toronto Standard. You remember the Toronto Standard, right? <laughs> I do. It's funny. This is just, you know, I think this has kind of crept up on us as just an informal segment that we now do where it's like, Will Sloan remembers deceased Toronto media properties <laughs> or declining ones. Well, the Toronto Standard was founded in 2011, and it was quite an innovative idea at the I time. I think it folded in 2011 as well, <laughs> didn't it? No, no, no. It stuck around for a few years. And I know that because I myself wrote for it, some freelance stuff, and it was great to write for because they accepted it every pitch I sent. You know, it was like, I remember once uh, Frankie Avalon was performing at the exhibition. Frankie Avalon was like a pop idol from the 50s. He was in, you know, a movie called Beach Blanket Bingo, a lot of, you know, beach party movies from back then. And, you know, he... he He's just an old guy now, and I and I thought. So, uh, sorry, uh, the micro genre you're talking about here was beach party movies from the fifties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Beach party. That's movies. that's a thing. Oh yeah, beach blanket bingo. How to stuff a wild <laughs> bikini. Uh, 
I'm forgetting what the other ones are called, but it'd be like Frankie Avalon and Nat Funicello. They were the young, cool people. And then you'd have a lot of old guys like like Buster Keaton was in some of them as comedy relief. It's good to have a real cultural historian like Will as my co-host. Frankie Avalon was coming to town and I was like, what if I interviewed Frankie Avalon? That would be so funny and cool. And I pitched it to the Toronto Standard. They were like, sure. So I interviewed Frankie Avalon, you know, talked to him about what was it like to work with Buster Keaton? What was it like to work with Otto Preminger? And they just ran it. And I feel like there are no more venues for stuff like that anymore in Toronto, you know? Just completely self-indulgent journalism that nobody cares about that I could just pitch. Anyway, so I look back on the Toronto Standard very fondly. I had a great time writing some stuff for them, but it was a, a quite novel idea at the time. It was, what if you had a newspaper, but it was on the internet? You know, you see newspapers, they only come out once a day in print. But on the internet, you can update it all the time during the day. And the Toronto Standard was, in fact, a dead media brand from the 19th century. It was a newspaper that lasted two years in the 19th century. And they kind of, like, brought this branding back, I guess. No, they they, they relaunched the newspaper. Is what they did. <laughs> yeah. Over a century later, like, I think a century and a half later, they relaunched it. But yeah, established a certain continuity with the past. And it's like, it's the best of both worlds. You've got kind of the rigor, the long form journalism of print, but you've also, it's, it's also online. You can look at it on your tablet. You can look at it on your phone. Anyway, this went the direction that many kind of directions. That already, that already sounds like such a dated claim. It's like, we're, we're talking about uh, a film which you know it feels dated because it's from 2013 but it's less than a decade ago that you could launch a media venture and be like this is this is online (laughs) that was like that's like literally you can can hold it's a newspaper that goes in your pocket i was watching the video from the launch party from 2011 today and that's that's literally all the pitch was it's incredible there were just people at this launch party like pointing at their tablets like you see it's customizable it looks one way on a tablet looks another way on a phone anyway this went the direction of many kind of directionless media ventures uh it went through some periods of inactivity eventually towards the end of its life and by the way it is still online at torontostandard.com but around 2015 it relaunched as a part journalism part branded content publication which is is always just the death knell isn't it like they they had a they had a section called innovators and the headlines are things like the world's first working hoverboard has been invented and meet Mealshare, the canadian startup that wants to create a culture of charitable dining you know it's funny even that sounds very dated i know you're saying that happened in 2015 but it's like you could have exactly that same model now but now it would also have to be woke one of my favorite articles ever written anywhere was published on june 18th 2015 and it is still one of the very last articles they ever published and it was one of like maybe a half dozen articles they published after being like offline for a year they came back they published a half dozen articles and then they just disappeared forever and the article is called amy schumer and a long winter nap and amy schumer was at the peak of her popularity when this article was written you know train wreck had just come out And this article reads like it was written by an algorithm. It's not signed by anyone. It's just signed Toronto Standard Editors. So I like to think it was written by an algorithm. It's it's written like The Economist, but for the gentrified normie culture of 2015. It's like if you took all the headlines from summer 2015 and put them into like generate a word cloud, this is what you would get. So it goes, you're not at Amy Schumer tonight. If you are, stop reading. She's a genius. I guess that means she was performing in Toronto that night. It's a pop culture moment at its ripest. Tonight's Toronto performance, just before Trainwreck comes out, overexposure sets in, when Amy Schumer is at the moment of greatest perfection in her ascent. (laughs) When we, being the collective Toronto standard we, reflect on changes to the cultural consciousness during our long winter nap, one of the forces that has changed us the most has to be Amy Schumer. Her brand of incisive social commentary comedy runs parallel to a trend that started with the protests in Egypt, came to North America during Ferguson. (laughs) Okay, stop right now. This sounds like a cross between Little Carmine from The Sopranos and like a Johnny Sun poem. Reached some kind of nadir slash zenith with hashtag Gamergate, Gomeshi and Cosby and is manifesting right now in Toronto in reaction to a sexual harassment lawsuit in the restaurant industry, colon, the tech-driven voice of the voiceless. 
It's poetic being depressing the agrarian-themed showdown between the two extremes of the Toronto restaurant industry, the party cowboy culture at Wes Lodge, and the socially conscious foodiness of Jen Ag at the Black Hoof. I've no idea what that's talking about. It is not surprising that a restaurant featuring dead animal heads on the walls might not have the most refined culture. What is surprising and new is the calling that culture out. Much of Schumer's power comes from what she calls her honesty bombs. Well, honesty bombs are in vogue, and they make a lot of ripples on the social web. There were very few ways to make ripples before people could retreat to Reddit or Twitter in the wake of new developments driven by podcast fans in the evolving fate of Adnan Syed or a sexual harassment lawsuit. Hundreds of people were discussing the suit and aware of Egg's panel within hours of its conception. The honesty bombs of the previously voiceless are changing us, inciting us to action driven by connectivity. Like, it feels like Finnegan's Wake, where you need, like, a whole a whole skeleton key to just it's, decipher. It's, it's, li- it's Little Carmine plus Johnny Sun, plus also, like, soft Thomas L. Friedman vibes as well, too. It's very, like, the world is flat. Tech and startup culture gets a lot of deserved scorn for its disconnectedness and self-absorption. But that culture is changing our world faster all the time and changing this city by bringing communities together and driving debate. Okay, that's just like marketing speak. That's going to be meaningful to a lot more people than quarterly earnings or revenue models. You'd be surprised. And while tech can be isolating, it's hard to feel less connected to humanity than in a room of people staring at their phones. It's also revealing our collective humanity in ways that are already changing us. We have visionaries, entrepreneurs, and innovators, and makers to thank for that. Originals like Jen Egg and Amy Schumer and Lee Rom Seagal, a young Toronto entrepreneur, founder of Click, who just held a conference Bill Clinton spoke at, or Vitaly Buterin, maybe the most brilliant blockchain mind in the world. In this great city of ours, people are dreaming of doing business in ways that don't look like anything that's come before. We're looking forward to shining a light on the people shaping the innovation culture. So that is the end of an article called Amy Schumer and a Long Winter Nap. It's like, it's like late capitalist slam poetry. I hope you are not expecting more information about Amy Schumer from that article. <laughs> See you next time, folks. So I've never met Robert Reich, but uh, a friend of mine was actually, uh, from my old job, was actually tasked once with picking him up at the airport ahead of a conference that he was speaking at. And I guess he'd had a long flight or something, and he had no idea who this guy was that was there to pick him up, and clearly didn't understand that this was actually an employee from the organization for whom he was speaking. And it was apparently quite bemused when uh, this random cab driver, who seemed remarkably conversant in post-Keynesian theory, started, uh, started trying to chat him up.